0: Welcome to Family Addiction Coaching, a podcast about families supporting a loved one with addiction. Each episode will provide insight into a real family's experience, what families find useful and not, what is available in the community, and what would help make their journey easier. Similar to what happens in our coaching service, we'll discuss how families have encouraged their loved one into recovery, as well as their own family recovery also discuss harm reduction, an especially useful approach for those with no current interest in recovery. I'm your host, Patrick Doyle of Family Addiction Coaching. With a master's degree in social work, I'm licensed by the state of Massachusetts and comply with the strict code of ethics of the National Association of Social Workers.
1: Patrick, what are some actionable steps that family members can take right now that you would recommend for improving their relationship with their loved one who's struggling? Like what's one tool above all others that you think is a lifesaver?
0: Really great question, Amanda. Self-care. It's all about self-care. It's so important that family members start thinking about taking care of their health, taking care of their welfare and their safety and their security including their financial security, and also their satisfaction in life, their happiness. It's so important to get gratification from life and have some enjoyment and have a balance between working hard, whether it's a job or helping your family member or your loved one, versus having your own life as well. Doing things that make you feel good Too often the families have become so wrapped up and preoccupied with issues related to active addiction that they usually lose sight of their own needs. If a family can turn that perspective around just to look at themselves, to figure out what do I need to do to give me more satisfaction in life, more happiness, to make me feel good about my life, what can I do to accomplish that? It could involve exercise, it could involve nutrition or healthy eating, pursuing hobbies like the arts, reading or creating something, taking a course, taking a class purely for fun. If you do nothing else, chances are you will improve your own life by focusing more on that self-care and chances are you'll also end up improving the life of your family and, and your loved ones.
1: And it helps to find things to be grateful for too. Yeah, I mean it creates a feeling in the home that's lighter and more hopeful and more laughter and trust. I mean it helps if yeah you know you're grateful and you can both or all of the family trust in a future because you can feel that and it keeps you going. You know, I mean, I believe it also like helps you decide which path to take along the way when you just right are focusing on things to be grateful for. I mean, heavier paths can easily burn everybody out, you know, and you then you typically don't achieve the results that you're aiming for anyway. It's just a heavy emotional right. burden type of feeling. Yeah.
0: What we see in families is that virtually all of their communication involves addiction or the consequences of the act of addiction. So that's all they talk to the person with the addiction about. They're not talking about sports or about life. All they're talking about is the addiction. Once you get into some type of recovery from the addiction, it's so important to develop about quality of life. In other words, you have to f- have something to stay healthy for. If you don't have something in your life that makes staying healthy worthwhile, it's really hard to continue your efforts at staying healthy. So we have to, for example, people have to have housing. They have to have jobs. They have to have relationships. They have to feel socially connected. They need support. They need hope. They need something that reinforces all the hard work that they have to go through, especially in early sobriety. In a similar kind of way, it's also true for the families. The families need to have a reason to get up and get out of bed in the morning and fight the good fight for another day. And that's something that I don't think we focus on enough, certainly not for the person with the addiction, even more so for the families, because we never talk about family recovery. Right. Yeah.
1: I mean, I know that when I was in early recovery, even though I was really open about it and talked about it a lot, I didn't like feeling like, OK, I got to go back home now. And now I'm just going to everybody's going to focus on my sobriety and how I'm doing. And they're going to be paying attention to you know, if I'm dozing off the table or am I making sense or am I late? I mean, it was um, it's a lot to carry, you know, and especially when you already feel guilty inside about what you're putting your family through you know it's um i would think that it makes a lot of people tend to avoid family situations
0: yeah absolutely um one family that i have been working with for three years or so now the their loved one is not interested in complete abstinence from alcohol They've tried the pushing abstinence approach. They've tried making abstinence part of their plan for financial support. That didn't work well. This person at this point in time is not ready to go for abstinence. So rather than be talking about abstinence and have you been drinking, whatever, they find it helpful to talk about movies. The person with the addiction and his mom, they both really enjoy movies and they enjoy talking about the Oscars and trying to see as many Oscar films as they can and then talking about the Oscar broadcast. And so they've, they've got this shared hobby about uh, watching movies. I think it's so positive that they do have that that they can talk about and they are able to find a way to enjoy that. And it doesn't mean that her son is necessarily out of the woods in terms of risks from problematic use. It gives them something else to talk about and to bond over and to remember, you know, to have some good times. And we also talk a lot about harm reduction with craft. Harm reduction basically means doing what one can to reduce the the likelihood of a person with addiction coming to harm. So basically, keep trying to keep them safe, making sure that they have, you know, food, that they have a certain amount of money that they need to live on in the hopes that they will live to fight another day, and that as time goes by, they will figure out other ways of dealing with things than their substance use, or maybe they'll gain some matter of control over it. It helps people develop their relationship with each other when the family stops insisting upon abstinence, but recognizes that it's really up to the individual whether they're going to go for abstinence or not, and that the best the family can do is to support any kind of positive behavior, positive progress, positive effort. And that it helps improve the relationship. It takes away the criticizing and the nagging and the pleading or the crying. And it gives them more and more opportunities to have a good feeling. It feels good to, people, to give other people compliments in general. And it feels good to receive compliments from others. So by sharing compliments, and like you mentioned, Amanda, that expressing gratitude, that really does help bring people closer together without such a singular focus on are you using, are you not, are you in treatment, or are you not?
1: Right. And I think a lot of people don't even take into consideration that that there are other options. Like somebody doesn't have to be completely abstinent. You know, I think it's up to um, the person in recovery or, or with addiction or, or whatnot to figure out what does recovery look like to them and how does the family feel about that? And um, you know, I think it helps to also create like an idea of what you're working towards, like as a goal, because Otherwise it's kind of an endless journey, you know, but if you can like set small goals to reach, like, okay, we got, they they have housing now they're safe. Okay. They have a job, you know, okay. They're making yeah. healthier decisions, you know, like those are small little goals to reach and you can also, um, you know, express the gratitude and it, it keeps a lot of hope along the way, just small things like that. It doesn't, somebody doesn't have to be completely abstinent and working full time and you're know, doing all these things that they might've been doing before just small improvements are nice. Just healthy right. decisions are nice.
0: Yeah. There's one individual who I was working with as, um, as a coach and, uh, that individual was trying to stop substance use. And we met for five, six sessions over the course of five or six weeks And that person was telling me that he was abstinent and that he was having a struggle, but he was feeling okay. Well, then the seventh uh, week came along and he reported that he had not been abstinent, that he had been using the substance throughout our sessions, throughout our meetings. And my response to that was, thank you so much for telling me that. I really appreciate hearing that. And I can only imagine how difficult that must be for you to admit. Yeah, Because it's like, the longer you go on with deception, it's like digging a hole deeper and deeper. It becomes harder and harder to say, help, I'm in a hole. Or or even just say, Sorry but I've not been truthful to you I've been using all along so I commended him for that and and I said you know that's the maybe that might be the most positive action that I've seen you take in all of our sessions and good for you and and how did you how did you get whatever you call it to voice that and that's just incredible and so for that individual the being able to be honest and truthful with his his use was something that he needed to work on uh, with my help, but also within himself. And he was, he was shocked when I gave him that kind of reaction because any other time with any other kind of support or treatment, if he were to say that he would be kicked out. Right. Uh, Yeah. And I said, why would I kick you out? You have, you have told me a truth that you've been unable to admit for several weeks now, and now you've—I see this as a huge accomplishment, and I mean that—that's terrific. And it was really fascinating to see him. I, over the phone, I could see him relax. I couldn't really see him, but I could feel him relax yeah. and feel more comfortable. And so, the work that we continued to do from there was to support his autonomy, his making his own choices as to what he's going to do, and me exam- helping him examine that without any kind of judgment or any kind of direction, really, but just bearing witness and helping him in that struggle to figure out what he wanted to do, because that that's that's took him time to figure out.
1: Yeah, it's really freeing for somebody also.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's what people say. And, and again, it's such a different experience for them than what they are usually encountering. Uh, Oh, and I also have that story. Can I tell you the story?
1: Yeah, yeah, you tell story. Okay. (laughs) Do you want me to ask a question to lead you into it? Or you just want to go right into it?
0: Well, let's see, where was my story going to be?
1: It was going to be because I was going to ask how can families navigate the resistance and barriers they get from treatment programs? I didn't get to ask that question.
0: Yeah, that's let's do that because that's 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 a great question. Yeah, I really wanted
1: to ask that. So,
0: yeah, um, let's do that. All right. So
1: how can families navigate the resistance and barriers they typically experience from treatment programs, like not being able to call your loved one or get any information on their progress or be part of their discharge plans when they finish treatment like what do you think is appropriate for families to do and how can they how can they go about that?
0: Amanda that question is so important and uh, sadly it is the question that most virtually all families they never get any kind of satisfaction along these lines they they don't know. How to navigate the resistance and the barriers that they experience from treatment programs, and I'll give you an example this and I've heard a lot of stories about the addiction treatment industry and about the conventional wisdom about addiction and recovery in American society these days. Um so I thought that there wasn't much that would shock and surprise me, but this one kind of blew me away. Um, I got a call from a woman. She said, "Uh, my husband has a severe alcohol use disorder. And yesterday, he went away in an Uber, ostensibly being driven to a treatment program. But I don't know where he is now, and I don't know if it's legit, and I don't know how to get any information about his treatment, or even if he's alive or dead. Wow. So I asked, well, how did this come about? And she explained, I had been expressing concern about his drinking for years now, and he's got cirrhosis of the liver. So it really has become a matter of life or death that he cannot drink anything at all. So there was a recent incident, and I expressed my concern again about seeing his drinking. Uh, And he said, I would take care of it. All of a sudden, yesterday... Uh, he came up to me in the middle of the day and he said "I'm going to treatment I'm getting picked up in thirty minutes, and i'll let you know where i am i'll well, he told her where he was going, but i'll contact you as soon as i can so and then within thirty minutes, a Uber driver came up and now the the caller was in shock about all of this, and the patient really didn't know how to answer her questions. How long are you going to be there? He didn't know. He wasn't told. So he gets into this anonymous Uber car and he gets driven away. Oftentimes, family members do drive their loved one to treatment. But in this case, she didn't even have the opportunity to do that, to see where he was going and to get some sense of the place. So um, after an hour and a half or two hours, she got a text message from her husband saying, well, I'm here I'll talk to you as soon as I can, but it won't be for a while. That was the last that she had heard from him. It had been 24 hours. Yeah. It's
1: pretty stressful.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'd be yeah. like, what?
1: what? What? Where are you? And, you know, and typically you can't reply. They, they take your phone.
0: Right. Right. So, So presumably that had been what had happened because he did text her saying, I'm here in the parking lot. I won't be able to call or contact you for some time. Don't worry. That was the last that she had heard of him. So she and then she described how she had had reached out to the treatment program. She knew the name of it, but how he found it was not clearly known. was it legitimate. That wasn't clearly known. So she had reached out and uh, she had sent a text message to this treatment program's website saying, my husband's had been admitted, but I don't know that for a fact. Can you please confirm that? Tell me anything about him. Please, I'm worried, sick over him. So she got a response by text message saying, we're too busy to respond to you. Uh, We will reach out to you when we can. So then she writes back and she says, well, how can I get through to you? And they said the same thing. You can't get through to us. And we're too busy to talk to you. Oh my gosh!
1: And it was probably like an automatic message too.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, and so, yeah. so we were thinking, well, gosh, when he wanted to gain admission, they sent an Uber to pick him up in thirty minutes, and they, they certainly, you know, took his information via text message. So they had plenty of time for him wow. when they was arranging to get admitted. But once he was there. They were, they were not going to respond to her at all. She had then called in by phone and spoke to someone, explained her situation, and all they said was, we can't confirm or deny anything because of HIPAA regulations, have a nice day. Right, patient privacy laws. Right, yeah, exactly. That's what they all hide behind, which in some cases is legitimate. Well, it's always legitimate. HIPAA is always important. But most programs have no interest in finding a way to get a patient permission to have any kind of contact with the family. They don't believe in it. Not only are they lazy, but they don't think it's good. They don't think that it's helpful. And some places might think it's downright harmful. Right. So then she and I were working on well, what can she do from here? So basically, I was informing her about certain support programs like allies in recovery dot net and resthelps.org and patrick at familyaddictioncoach.com <laughs> oh that's my email address <laughs> yes, family, it, it it's my web address family addiction coach dot
1: com
0: okay that's your web address
1: how did um, was she able to find out if her husband was there and and how long he'd be there for or anything?
0: Not yet. Uh, but basically, I, I so I gave her a lot of information. I told her about the book, Get Your Loved One Sober, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I suggested, I mean, think, you know, what would you do if your husband you had word or reason to believe that your husband was in a general hospital in an ICU? You would call them if they were. If they were, they would always talk to you. If you said, My husband is in your ICU, they would find out some way to talk to you, right? Right. Um, so just think about it as, a, as any kind of medical illness. And um, so when you get pushed away by the receptionist, then ask to speak to the nursing supervisor, ask to speak to the medical director of the program, ask to speak to the owner. I mean, just keep going up the line and basically say, I need to give you information about my husband's a matter of life and death. How do I do that? How can you communicate with me? And you just can't can't give up. You just have to be a pest and see if they will reply to you or arrange for some kind of communication between you and them and them and the patient. There's no guarantee that it's going to help, Mm -hmm. but sometimes when you uh, approach in that way, sometimes you might find a compassionate, reasonable staff person who's willing to break their rules and then might ask your loved one, do you want to sign a release so we can talk to your uh, spouse? And And your loved one probably would do it. Right. Or,
1: you know, let them know, um, we believe your spouse keeps calling. You should probably give them a call when you get a chance. Because I know that some places do allow phone time. Um, I know that I was allowed an emergency call while I was in detox and wasn't allowed any calls while I was in rehab, but I had, you know, my family was allowed to come and see me on the weekends. And I think that they gave them that information while I was there. But um, yeah,
0: you're an exceptional person, Amanda. I mean, anybody who knows you knows that. I mean, you're one of a kind. <laughs> um, you're you're an exceptional person. So I, I totally believe that you were thinking about your family while you were in treatment. Yet, I mean, if if someone's feeling really sick, uh, you know, going through withdrawal, and and then afterwards, they're feel they're dealing with their emotions going all over the place. I mean, how many people are even going to have the the wherewithal right. to think my family wants to hear from me? I, I really yeah. ought to let them know what's going on. I mean, most people, in my experience in treatment, they think their family wants nothing to do with them and wants a break from them, and they are too ashamed to reach out.
1: Yeah. And sometimes you you know everything is on cell phones now. Like I couldn't remember, I wouldn't be able to remember half of the phone numbers that I would need to call. Like right. if I were put um, in jail or the hospital or or rehab today, I would only remember a couple numbers. But um, I do remember when I was admitted to psychiatric hospital and they took me off all my medication, and I didn't want to call. I. I don't think I called my parents for four or five days. They were in the dark that one time. I was definitely not thinking about that. I was sick. I didn't want to get out of the bed or or anything like that. So, yeah, I can can understand, you know, somebody, especially going through detox or whatnot. The last thing on your mind is
0: calling somebody. Yeah, I mean, being in treatment is really tough it's really challenging i mean for at most places it's really hard and it's really painful it's not a vacation it's not club med right although we've got that image in our minds you know someone goes away to 30 days to malibu or something yeah they're riding horses
1: in the sunset
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and and maybe some places do do that but for I mean, virtually all patients who are involved in treatment, it's really hard work. Mm-hmm. And they're, I mean, they're not able to really think all that clearly.
1: No, it's jarring too. I mean, just being someplace completely different. Suddenly you have roommates. Sometimes you have 30 roommates. Um, and then, and yeah. then you learn that you're on a very rigid schedule. I know one place, the place that I went to for detox, they're Residential rehab part of the hospital was full schedule from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. I mean, they kept you super, super busy. But it's um, it's not that must have been
0: exhausting.
1: Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I didn't, (laughs) didn't have to go through that, but a lot of people do and and are and um, just the whole experience is is quite a lot to take in. I mean, it, you know, it saved my life, and I would. I would never uh, deter anybody from going to rehab, but, um, you know, it's different. Sometimes just being able to catch your breath and call your family takes a couple days.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and Amanda, from what I know of you, you, you were ready when you got treatment. You were ready for it, and you were determined to, to make use out of it, and you were single-minded um and you had a lot of strengths even with drug use and addiction you still had a lot of strengths uh so so that really that really boded uh I can't think of what to say but that's okay I'll just have to cut it out that that was really useful for you yeah not everybody has that
1: yeah not everybody goes in that way.
0: Right. Let me tell you, um, if I may, some one of the things that, that families can really use help with is when they run up against that stone wall from the treatment program. And on occasion, families will ask me to serve as a interface um, to communicate information to the treatment program where the, their loved one is and to give collateral information. When I'm working with families, I find out different perspectives. And oftentimes I have information that the person with the addiction is not aware of because they haven't been paying attention to their surroundings sometimes, or maybe for other reasons they're unaware of it. But when families have asked me to do that, it can be very helpful. And especially you mentioned something about discharge planning and treatment planning. A lot of programs, if you don't speak up, they will do, get as much money out of the insurance company to keep you in that residential program, then they'll discharge you uh, when the insurance says no more. And as if you're cured uh, and that you're, the treatment is over and they'll just send you home yeah. without, sometimes without even notifying family. Yeah. So all of a sudden a patient arrives home at the doorstep and the family is totally surprised. So it's, it, what we've learned is that it's so important And if I ever get involved, I insist that a residential program schedules appointments for people to pursue aftercare, which is generally, most times, it's needed after the intensive residential program because these are chronic illnesses and the recovery from these illnesses takes a long time. It doesn't take a matter of days and it's not done once the withdrawal process is finished but there's a a rehabilitation and a healing recovery part that can last for months maybe even years so we always insist that they develop a good discharge plan for post discharge that they schedule appointments before the patient leaves the hospital and that the family is aware of them and knows what the and has guidance about what they should do if the person uh maybe resumes use or is in fear of resuming use or some disaster might happen, how can the family best respond? So that's one way that uh, families say that I've been really helpful to them to get that kind of information from a treatment program that they can't get on their own.
1: So you'd recommend if somebody was um, looking for a treatment program to find out if that program offered like IOP and scheduling afterwards and if they don't then to look into that to continue treatment
0: after inpatient right exactly and and to get details and for example what is your family program many places 30-day programs all they do is they'll have family come out towards the tail end and they go through these canned exercises with other families. There's nothing individualized about the family weekends. Uh, and so it's also important to ask about individualized treatment planning and also how the program communicates with family members. What? How do they accept input or information from the family? How do they communicate and really get very specific about it? So there was one program that I worked in where, Basically, every week, I was expected to meet with the family uh, without fail and then bring information into the treatment team about the family's perspective and also about planning for discharge and what, what can we do with the home environment that will facilitate someone's recovery? What are things happening that might be a deterrent or not facilitate the recovery? So there are programs that will have weekly family meetings. Uh, and are so uh, insistent upon it that you basically have to do it as part of the treatment. So yeah. it's important to get specifics.
1: That sounds pretty amazing that they had that program. Yeah, it
0: yeah. was. It was a great place to train. And that's how I've learned everything that I've learned about the importance of involving family in treatment. And it's, you know, all these years later, it still holds true
1: yeah those are great questions, too. I mean, I'm full of questions and always have a list before I call anything, but i've I've never thought about those questions like what is your family plan, and how do you communicate with the family members that's that's yeah, really yeah. um,
0: it's really good it's really it's really key. Mm-hmm. What we find is that a lot of websites for treatment programs, they will claim to have evidence based practices and such. Um, But then, and if you're savvy, you look at some of the things they're talking about, like equine therapy, for example. Equine therapy, if you love horses, I suppose it could be helpful and fun and encouraging. But it's not been evidence-based to show being useful in recovery from addiction. But a lot of programs will state that and state that they do this, that they do that, because they've learned the buzzwords and so they claim that. But when you ask them, well, do, does your staff have degrees and what are the minimum level of training that you require for people to work in your program, you may hear a very different story.
1: Yeah, that's a really good
0: question. Also,
1: you know, I don't even think a lot of people really understand what evidence based treatment is.
0: Right. It, it And it gets thrown around so much that it's become useless. It, it's only used to. It's like smoke and mirrors. These programs they put evidence based and you know cognitive behavioral therapy, which has is an evidence based approach and that has proven to be useful in treating addiction, and that's all true. But how the program implements it and what that means in terms of their programming and their 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 support is it's totally up in the air. They, they, It's not like they have to back it up with anything.
1: Right. And I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, when I hear evidence-based, I just think, well, it's based on evidence. But how often do people yeah. think, well, what kind of evidence is it based on? <laughs> right. You know?
0: Right. And the, I mean, similarly, some places purport to have very high outcomes, uh, success stories, like 90% of people who go through their programs are still in recovery and abstinent a year later. But are they self-reported Yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. And and then if you learn more that you learn that they don't do follow-up with people who leave the program prematurely you know that leave before the end of the 30 days mm-hmm. so that excludes a whole population of people who are dissatisfied with the treatment that they're receiving yeah so it it's 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 usually sketchy and it's really important to ask a lot of questions and you
1: you gave a lot of good questions for people to ask so that'll help thank you Amanda <laughs> so you want to wrap it up and Tell people again how they can find you?
0: Well, let me. I think I interrupted you with a yeah. So (laughs) here's your cue again. All right. So let's
1: wrap it up and tell people how they can find you.
0: My website is familyaddictioncoach.com. I've got information on there that can be very useful about craft and other approaches. We also have a podcast series called the Family Addiction Coaching Podcast, and that's available at iTunes on Google podcasts and anywhere else you can find podcasts. People can reach me directly at Patrick at patrickatfamilyaddictioncoach.com. People can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Patrick Doyle underscore 35. And you're very active on there too, if people want to follow you. Yes, I try to be, but I try to make it useful material and not spam.
1: Right. No, there's never any spam coming from your (laughs) Twitter. It's all
0: useful stuff thanks for joining us for this episode of family addiction coaching and if you liked what you heard please subscribe to the show we'll continue to interview interesting and strong families as long as there is a need for this information in the community make sure to visit our website www.opioidcoaching.com if you think you might want professional coaching for yourself or your family Patrick Doyle is available have a peaceful day